Well, good morning. You are out there, aren't you? I got on the on these Sundays. I need to move this pulpit like right down there. And for you on watching online, um, you can sit right where you are. And down at F three, glad you're here with us as well. Um, social scientists have uh, long studied this idea of social identity theory. Uh, they do so because um, there seems to be this innate propensity in the human brain to, um, uh, to view each other in kind of categories. It's the, the us versus them mentality. You know, the idea that there is an in-group and an out-group. I'm in the in-group, you're in the out-group. Um, if you don't look like me and talk like me and act like me and whatever, then you're on the out group. And everybody who looks like me and acts like me and talks like me, well, I'm a little more comfortable with them. They're in the in group. It's the us versus them mentality. It's a, it's a mindset, um, and again, social scientists, it's just something innate. They, just, they study this and they realize, where did this come from? Where, where does it come from that we put people into categories, um, whether it's race or gender or social economic status, nationality, culture, religion, whatever it is? We like to categorize one another and then feel more comfortable with those who are like me. Now, in the first century, there was probably no bigger chasm, the us versus them chasm, uh, than the Jewish mindset. Um, they were God's chosen people. And, and every non-Jew were Gentile dogs. They weren't like us. We were the chosen people. And, and that chasm between the Jew and the Gentile, uh, it, 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 it couldn't be spanned. It, it seemed like a perpetual gulf between the us, the Jews, and the them, the Gentile dogs. But God had something different in mind. And we're going to look at that in Acts chapter 10 this morning. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 10, one of the most important, significant chapters, I think, in the book of Acts. It's about two men, two visions, and one God that that brought them together and forever changed the course of human history. Right here in Acts chapter 10. So let's read the first couple verses because we're introduced to the first person. His name, Cornelius. There was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort or regiment. A devout man, one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. Cornelius, um, a Roman centurion of the Italian regiment, the Italian cohort, uh, a cohort, a regiment was 600 soldiers. Um, Ten of these cohorts made up a Roman legion, 6,000 uh, soldiers. Centurion was like a, a captain. He was a, um, uh, the military leader of, of a century, of a of a group of 100 soldiers. He was a centurion of the Italian cohort. And uh, his assignment was in no insignificant city. It was the city of 
Caesarea. Uh, now, Caesarea was built by Herod the Great in honor of Caesar Augustus, and it was kind of the quintessential Roman outpost. It was the capital of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the Roman um, oversight of Judea, of that region. And so it was a very significant area. Uh, Herod had, uh, when he built this city, had um, put in a man-made harbor. This is an aerial view of that. If you've been to Israel, this was one of our, my favorite places to, to see. You had this uh, man-made uh, harbor. He had deepened it. Um, he had um, brought in fresh water through an elaborate aqueduct system. Again, you go there today, you'll see the, the, re, the ruins of the aqueduct system. Um, it was um, a place where, again, a lot of Roman soldiers were, so you've got to have entertainment. So he built the Hippodrome. That was where you had the horse races and the chariot races. You know, this is where Ben-Hur, you know, the, you, you see the chariot races. Um, so they had their entertainment there, and if you um, wrapped up from the race, the chariot races, you can then run down the street and go to the theater. And the Roman theater was there. It's still functional, and, and they do performances there today. Uh, so this was, uh, the, again, the quintessential Roman outpost, and, um, and, and Cornelius was the quintessential uh, Roman soldier, the centurion um, Cornelius. But there's something else about Cornelius that we read in verse 2. He was a very religious man. He was a very devout uh, God-fearer, it says. And interestingly, and we don't know the background, we don't know, it just, we know what we read, that he somehow had accepted this idea of the Jewish God. He was a monotheist. He was following after the Old Testament God of Israel. Um, he prayed continually, it says. He gave alms, many alms, to the Jewish people. He was a very devout man. He was not a full-fledged proselyte. We read that in the next chapter, chapter 11, verse 3. He was an uncircumcised Gentile. So he would still be viewed by the Jewish people as, a, as, a, a, as one of them, as the outcast, as, uh, as um, a Gentile dog. But he and his household, and he must have very much uh, influenced his family and his friends because it says they were um, worshipers and fear, God-fearers of the Jewish God. He was a very devout religious man. But there's something else about Cornelius, and I, this is a bit conjecture, but I, I think we'll see in a moment uh, why I'm saying this. I think Cornelius, he was on this, this um, religious spiritual mission. I think he was a man um, who knew no peace. There was something going on in his spirit, and it, it drove him to pursue after the God of Israel. There was something he saw about the, the, this monotheistic Jehovah God of the Old Testament, and he was doing everything he could. He prayed continually. He's giving alms to the Jewish people. He is a driven man, and I think he found had no peace. It just never satisfied. There was something longing and missing. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 3. It was about the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon. He clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he was deeply disturbed by this. He said, what is it, Lord? 
And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his personal attendants. And verse 8 says, and after he'd explained everything to them, he sent them down to Joppa. Here's a man, deeply devout, and in response to his, his pursuit of this God, God shows up through this angel and tells him to go fetch Peter down in Joppa. Um, and so, that's exactly what happened. Now, um, that's the first man and his shocking vision. Uh, verse 9 starts looking at Peter, the second man, and his vision. So on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching um, the city, and, and by the way, we're talking about about 30 miles, 33 miles from Caesarea where Cornelius was, where Peter was down south in Joppa, about a 33-mile journey. On the next day, uh, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up to the housetop. It was about the sixth hour to pray, so at noon. And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. This is a little bit, I don't know if you can identify with Peter. I can. I mean, he's a devout guy too, right? He's up there on the roof doing his prayer time. It's, it's noon. Um, but in the midst of the prayer time, he gets a little hungry. And so he asks for some food, and they're making preparations. And while he was trying to pray and not listen to his growling stomach, he falls into a trance, it says. And in verse 11, what did he see? The sky opened up, and an object like a, a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and, and creepy things, you know, crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him and said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Isn't that just like kind of dreams? You, 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 you fall asleep thinking about food, and what do you dream about? Food. And that's, uh, you know, Peter, I thought you were supposed to be praying. Well, he was hungry, his stomach's growling, and then he has this vision about food. But what a weird vision this was. This, whatever it was, like a sheet drops down, and he looks, and there on that sheet are are tasty little lambs and uh, tender little goats and maybe some, some cows and good beef there uh, and then a pig and uh, a, a, a creepy crawling thing like a snake or a rat or something there. Things that were according to the Jewish law, clean, and then other things that, according to the Jewish law, were unclean, that should never be tasted, should never be eaten. And they're all there, and the voice simply says, go ahead, kill and eat. Take your pick, kill and eat. And in verse 14, Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. But again, a voice came to him a second time and said, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And then the object was immediately taken up into the sky. 
Um, what we're seeing here, we've talked about this before in the book of Acts. This, Acts is a, a, a transitional book. Remember we've talked about that? It sits between that Old Testament time and the New Testament time. It's a, it's a book of transition. We're coming out of the Old Testament, that Old Testament that focused on the Jewish people and the, the Mosaic laws and the Levitical systems. And, and, um, and it's transitioning to something new, the New Testament era. We're moving out of the, the old law into the new age of grace. We're moving out of the time of Israel into the time of this new church age, this age of grace versus that age of law. And here Peter is stuck in the middle. I have never eaten anything unholy, unclean. I'm a good Jewish boy. I obey the Mosaic law. I would never do that. And three times the vision has to tell him, kill and eat. Take your pick. Um, what, a, what a critical chapter this is. Um, very, very significant. And it was very, very confusing to Peter. How do we make sense of this? Um, well, let's keep reading. We'll see here. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, well, obviously he was. Again, I don't, you know, we don't fully appreciate this. Um, because that's not how we grew up. And, but again, you, if we understand how, just this good Jewish boy who just followed things down to the letter, he would never do this. It went everything against his, his religious sensitivities of how he'd been trained and how his people had been taught for centuries from the Mosaic Law. That's God's word. Um, so he's perplexed about this. What, what is going on here? What, what, what does this mean? Behold, while he was contemplating this, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Now again, as we talked about last week, do you see the sovereignty of God all over this? God is orchestrating this. So the day before, Cornelius, the centurion Gentile dog, has his vision at three in the afternoon. The next day at noon, Peter has his vision right about the time that these three guys are coming down from Caesarea to Joppa to find him. And it all converges wonderfully at the time as Peter is scratching his head, wondering what in the world was that all about? And then there's a knock at the door. And here they are. And God says, Peter, here's what's going to happen. Three men are looking for you. Now, verse 20, get up, go downstairs, accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Um, though that word, by the way, without misgivings, without hesitation, some of our translations say. It's a word that uh, implies this... Um, this um, <clears throat> Uh, debating in, one, in one's mind. You're wrestling with this thing. There's a knock at the door. You look through the little peephole, and what do you see? A Roman soldier, because it was one of the personal attendants, and two other Gentiles. And all of a sudden, you know, the normal thing would be, oh, should I open the door or not? I mean, it's, it's like 
you've probably had that happen, you know, knock on the door some Saturday afternoon and there's two guys in white shirts and little ties with, were up on bicycles, you know, some Mormon there, Jehovah's Witness, and he's, ah, oh, what should I do? I'm busy, ah, oh, but, you know, maybe I can, you know. Um, that's, and, and God says, Peter, I know what you're going to do. You're going to debate in your mind. I'm telling you, don't do it. Have no misgivings. Um, I have sent them myself. You're going to see, you're going to meet these three men. They're going to be Gentiles. Don't hesitate to invite them in. Don't debate in your mind. Don't reflect on their Gentileness. Um, don't deliberate in your mind. And uh, though all your cultural and religious sensitivities are going to scream, shut the door, don't open it, don't do it. Open the door. I have sent them to you. And Peter responded. He responded, verse 23, he um, invited them in and gave them lodging. They, um, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, so to come to his, uh, your house to hear a message from you. And so Peter obeyed, invited them in, gave them lodging. That, again, folks, that was unheard of. You just didn't do that as a Jew. You would not do that. In fact, let, let me read to you um, um, a, a comment that, um, let's see if I can find it here. The, uh, there's a guy by the name of Alfred Edersheim. And years ago, he wrote a, he, he wrote a commentary on uh, or a book called The Life and Times of, of Jesus the Messiah. And in his book, he talks about this, these sensitivities. I, I think it's significant, and it helps us understand a little bit what Peter was going through. In writing about these, these Jews, he said, and, and Gentiles, he said, In truth, the bitter hatred which the Jew bore to the Gentile can only be explained from the estimate entertained of his character. The, the most vile and even unnatural crimes were imputed to these Gentiles. It was not safe to leave your cattle in their charge, to, to allow uh, their women to nurse infants or their physicians to attend the sick, nor to walk in their company without taking precautions against sudden and unprovoked attacks. You know, keep your eye on the Gentiles. They should, so far as possible, be altogether avoided except in the cases of necessity for the sake of business. For they and theirs are defiled. Their houses are unclean, as containing idols or something dedicated to them. Their feasts, their joyous occasions, their very contact was polluted by idolatry. And there was no security. If a heathen were left alone in a room, that he might not in, in wanton care or, or carelessness defile your, your wine or your meat on the table or the oil and wheat in your storehouse. Under such circumstances, therefore, everything must be regarded as having been rendered unclean. That was the Jewish mindset. And then Edersheim adds this. He said, There's an there was an isolated Jewish teacher who ventured upon this statement. The best of the Gentiles killed. And the best of the serpents crushed their heads. That's what Peter was facing. And God says, now, put that aside. Have no misgivings. Invite him in. And he did just that. He invited them in. So the next day, they leave for... Joppa, they get up, they head out, and um, that's where the Jewish disciple of Jesus meets up with the Gentile dog, the centurion, the Roman centurion. Verse 24, 
On the following day, he entered Caesarea, and now Cornelius was waiting for them, had called together his relatives and his close friends. Isn't that amazing? Um, he, he, he dispatches these three followers, and um, he knew that God was going to do something. And in faith, he calls, he brings his family and close friends together, waiting for them to return, and they come. Verse 25, and when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. What an awkward situation. Peter raised him up and said, stand up, I too am just a man. And as they talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner to visit him, and yet... God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Peter simply is reminding them, you know, Cornelius, this is really weird. This should not be happening. There's no way on God's green earth that I would be here. Except God has shown me something. I should call no one unholy or unclean. Um, it, it just shouldn't happen. And that is why verse 29 I came without raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent me? Why do you want to see me? And Cornelius, verse 30, said, Well, four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And he just recounts what happened. Behold, a man stood before me in shiny garments, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa, invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So, verse 33, I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we're all here, present before God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Wow, what an amazing thing. Two men, two visions, totally different backgrounds. One viewed, according to the Old Testament, as a chosen people clean before God, the Jew Peter, the other one unclean, a Gentile dog, and they've come together because God has ordained it. An audience who was eager to hear, we're here to hear. Tell us what God has told you. And one who is eager to share it, the Jew Peter. And so Peter begins his message. And it says in verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, and by the way, that's a kind of a weird little phrase, opening his mouth, he said, normally it would just say, and he said, but that little extra phrase in there is a little idiom, a little uh, um, literary device that wants to give us an indicator that what is about to come out of his mouth is very, very important. So when you see that, opening his mouth, he said, it's like, perk your ears up. What is about to be said is strategically important. It says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. What was the significant thing being said? It was something about the character of God, and he doesn't show favoritism. Now, again, that's a a word, I think it's the only place this word is used in the New Testament, but it's a, it's a word that, um, it's literal uh, meaning, it's etymological meaning has the idea of lifting one's face. So, uh, last night in the Saturday night service, uh, there was a family sitting right here on the front row, and I'm, I always preach from down there on Saturday night. Um, 
And uh, so I went over to that family, had them all bow their heads. I said, bow, bow your heads. So bow their heads. And I took one of them, and I took one of the, the boys, and I lifted his head. That's what the word literally means, to lift the countenance, to lift the face. While all the others had their head bowed, I picked him up, lifted him, and we caught each other's eyes. And I winked at him and said, you and me, you're special. Partiality, the lifting of the face. And what Peter is saying here, you know, I finally come to the conclusion. That's not what God does. He's not a facelifter. He doesn't show partiality. We're all in need. We all have a need. And he doesn't pick out this person here, this, this Jewish race. Um, God doesn't do that. It's a stunning statement. We're all in need of God's grace. Now, but wait a minute. The, the Jews were God's chosen people. Peter's saying is that what God is showing him is that... Um, the times are changing. We're moving out of the old into the new. And he says, as it continues in verse 35, but that in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know. The thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting with Galilee after the baptism of John um, proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, verse 38, and how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God is with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did in both the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who, who, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people, the Jewish people, solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Um, Peter's message. Um, it, it's a, by the way, some commentators say, if you, if you look at this, this is a little summary of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark, as he wrote his Gospel, got it from Peter, and you see this all kind of summarized. The pro proclamation of John the Baptist, and then starting in Galilee, the Judean, going to Jer Jerusalem, and his crucifixion, his resurrection, all outlined. What Peter gives here is a little Christology, a little study of, the, of Jesus, of who Jesus is, a Christ-focused gospel message with an emphasis on he's the one who gives peace. Um, that's where I think the link grabbed the heart of Cornelius because I think that's what Cornelius was wanting and deeply lacking. He was in a hot pursuit of God, but it was getting him nowhere. There was a hole in his soul between him and the true God. And what he needed was that reconciliation, that peace with God. And Peter is saying, that's what Jesus came to offer. He came to give peace. A man driven, desperately wanting God, those were, that was like a cup of cold water to a thirsty soul. That was Peter's message. 
And next week we'll find out what happened. Of course, you, I mean, you got eyes, you can read. All of a sudden, it says in verse 44, while Peter was still preaching, boom, the Holy Spirit lands and these people get saved because the message was all who believe in Jesus, all who believe in him will have forgiveness of sins. Uh, a remarkable story. This is earth-shattering in the movement of God and his redemptive plan for the world. It's why you and I, unless there's any Jewish ethnic people back here, but uh, it's why as Gentiles we are sitting here today worshiping and celebrating God of his plan right here in Acts chapter 10. Um, but the rest of the time, I just want to share with you some applicational observations. We're in this building bridges uh, uh, theme that we've been uh, talking about for a number of weeks. And we've talked about how we uh, need to be praying for, uh, asking the Lord to lay on our hearts that someone who doesn't know Jesus and, be, and really be praying for them. Um, we've been talking about um, uh, the little uh, uh, building bridge cards each week that you can take home and you can read the passages of the Scripture and gives you some things that you can do, um, put into practice. Uh, if you're in a community group, we've offered a four-week study, uh, and, and they're back there in, in, um, in the uh, home center as well if you just want to do it on your own. But a little four-week study about building bridges. So we've been putting this, this focus on building bridges. But, you know, after you build bridges, we've got to do what Peter did. We've got to open our mouth. And I want to share with you real quickly ten, I call these the, the ten steps from Peter Ten steps of effective evangelism, right from what we, share, what we read from Peter's uh, message right here. So ready? Here we go. They're in uh, sermon notes and things like that, but here we go. Here's the first step of Peter's effective evangelism. Number one, like Peter, we need to pray. It all begins with prayer. Someone once said that the door of evangelism to the Gentiles opened on the hinge of prayer. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the 1800s, said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. What was Cornelius doing? The third hour, he was, in the ninth hour, he was praying. What was Peter doing at the, 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 the sixth hour up on the roof? He was praying. And it begins with prayer. And we've talked about finding that, that one person that maybe God would have you be praying for. Never underestimate the power of prayer. Who is it that God is laying on your heart who doesn't know Jesus yet? There's a ton of people I'm sure we could pray for, but who is it that God is specifically tapping you on the shoulders and saying, pray for them? Evangelism starts with prayer. And then second of all, like Peter, we need to listen to God. We need to pay attention to God's word to that prompting of the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's how the Spirit works. Through circumstances, I mean, Peter couldn't miss it. God had to walk him through it, or the vision did. Okay, Peter, here's the plan. Someone's going to knock at your door. There's going to be three guys there, and they're going to be Gentiles, but don't close the door on them, and this is what you do. And all of a sudden, knock at the door. The circumstances of life. And God used that to compel Peter to say, okay, it's okay. He listened to God. I've shared this before, I'm sure, at some point. One of the first times I learned that, I was in high school. And um, the pastor of our church, a little rural church that I grew up in, 
his wife had a brother, the pastor's wife had a brother who did not know the Lord, was deeply involved. This is in like 1971 in that whole drug culture. And she was so burdened for him. And she had asked the youth group at that time, please pray for my brother. And I will never forget this. The first time I kind of learned this, it was like 2, 3 in the morning. I woke up from sleep, high school kid, and there was this overwhelming sense Pray for Steve, this, this gal's brother. Pray for Steve. So I sat up in bed. I prayed for his salvation, went right back to sleep. That was on a Saturday night. Go to church the next morning. And um, the pastor's wife said, I, I heard from Steve this morning. He trusted Christ last night, middle of the night. The prompting of God. We pray and then we listen. This is a relationship with Almighty God. He speaks to us. He, you listen to that, and then like Peter, thirdly, we just obey. We, we act obediently to God. Peter prayed, he listened to God, and then he went and talked with Cornelius. And how did that talk go? Here's the fourth thing. Like Peter, ask a question. Here's Cornelius and his family all gathered, and he simply said, so what is it that you want to hear from me? What, what would you like? It's always safe to ask and start with a question. Don't meet people with a head with the Bible. Just engage people in conversation. Um, I talked with, heard a couple guys yesterday, young guys uh, talking about how they will go to a restaurant. And you've probably have done this. I know some of you have. And uh, the wait staff there comes up to the table, and the two, these two young 23-year-old guys say, um, uh, we usually pray before a meal. Is there anything we can pray for you about? Just ask a question. You enter into a conversation, you're talking about uh, you know, basketball season ending, the final four coming up, or the weather, or whatever else, and then all of a sudden, and, and, and it, it can be awkward, but that, that's okay. You just simply can ask a question like, by the way, what, it, it, do you have any interest in spiritual things? Would, would you mind if I talk to you about Jesus? Have you ever considered who Jesus was? Or um, we've done evangelism training here with Larry Moyer, evangelist from Dallas, who's done our beast feasts before. And Larry would always begin with a question, hey, has anybody taken a Bible and shown you how you can know you have eternal life? Um, start with a question. Um, ask them. And then, like Peter, listen. Listen to their response. What do they say? Um, don't um, always feel like you've got to fill the gap with your um, verbiage. Listen for their response. Engage in a conversation, but switch that conversation that is talking about sports and weather and work and everything. At some point, just go ahead and switch it to spiritual a question. Hey, have, have you ever considered who Jesus Christ is? And then listen to their response. And then very importantly, like Peter, we need to open our mouths and share Jesus. We need, to, you know, look, folks, people never get to heaven by looking at our good life. And it's important that we live a, a, a good testimony before the world, before our neighbors, before our coworkers, to live out that, that compelling witness of who Jesus is in our life. But folks, people never get to heaven by watching your good deeds. They get to heaven when they hear the good news about Jesus. And at some point, we have to open our mouths. Someone once said we're so much like the Arctic River. We're frozen at the mouth. 
And at some point, we have to open our mouth and share the good news about Jesus. And what, it, what do we say? What did Peter say? Like Peter, we focus on Jesus. It was a Christocentric message. This is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus was. And the essence of that... The essence of that is called the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is this truth, Jesus died and he rose again. What must a person believe in order to have eternal life? That Jesus died and rose again. This is how the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, I want to make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, which I preach to you, which you received and which you stand by which you are saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached, unless you believed it in vain, for, and here it is, I delivered to you as a first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, the proof of his death. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and the proof of that is that he was seen. He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then five hundred others. There it is. That's the gospel by which we're saved. The good news is that Jesus died and rose again. He paid the penalty for our sins by his shed blood. The implication is, I needed that. I'm a sinner. I can never do this on my own. So Jesus came, and he took my sin upon himself, and he paid the penalty for my sin. Jesus died for me. And he paid, his, the work that he did, he paid in full, and the Father raised him again on the third day. And the good news is that he offers to anyone eternal life, as Peter said, who simply believe. When you believe it, you have the forgiveness of sins. The core message of the gospel is Christ died for our sins and he rose again. So when we share that good news with somebody, we make that the focal point. And after we share that good news, here's another thing we do. Like Peter, we invite them to put their trust in Christ. We invite them to trust Christ. Um, anyone who believes in him, Peter said, will have forgiveness of sins. Um, the the, the role of, of the, the mediator that the, the God wants to use, the, the mouth opener, the, the person who's opening their mouth, who's sharing this, delivering this good news, who, as a friend of mine says, is like a straw. He's just, you know, round and hollow, but he delivers, he's a conduit to deliver the goods. That's what we're called to be, a straw. We deliver the goods, we share the good news, and then we invite them to do something with it. And what is that something they are to do? Believe it. It's that simple. If you're here today, you've never put your trust in Christ, that, that's how you know you're going to heaven. That's how you get to heaven. That's how you have eternal life. You believe the good news that what Jesus did. He died and he rose again. He paid the penalty. If you put your faith in Christ and him alone, we have eternal life. It's given to us as a free gift. What could be simpler? So we invite people, and then number nine, like Peter, you just get out of the way. I mean, let the Holy Spirit work. He's the one who opens hearts. He's the one who changes lives. We just are the straw that delivers the goods. You let God be working. Get out of the way. You don't have to force it. We don't, can't save anybody. God does that. And so we see our role, and we'll see next week, because that's exactly what happened. As while, it says, while Peter was still speaking, it's like, okay, Peter, I'm done. You've, you've shared the good news. That's it. And then, boom, these people get saved. And then what do we do? Then we celebrate it. And we'll see again next week that um, they had a wonderful uh, baptism service. 
These people had trusted Christ as their Savior, and what do they do? They celebrate it, and they publicly affirm. It's a first step of discipleship, and they had a baptism celebration, just like we had two weeks ago, right? We had uh, 400 people here gathered together for this baptism, 22 people, some children, some adults, all sharing that they know Jesus and what Jesus has done, and we celebrated. And maybe some of you were here, maybe some of you weren't here, but this is what it looked like. picture of baptism says different things to different people. The people who are being baptized tonight are really, is a demonstration of what they're saying to the world. They're saying, I want you to know what Jesus Christ did for me. He died for me, washed me clean, and gave me a new life. To other believers, they're saying, I want you to know I'm a part of the body of Christ. I'm one of you. I hope you build into my life and I into yours. to be baptized because I believe Jesus died for me and I love him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever because <laughs> God will always be there for me. I have believed in God as long as I can remember. I will walk in his footsteps for the rest of my life and teach others the love of God. Thank you. I grew up Mormon and I was baptized <clears throat> at eight years old in the Mormon church. When I met my husband and my mother-in-law, 10 years ago, who is Christian, I began my journey to knowing and loving God the real way. The mother, friend, neighbor, sister, daughter, and wife I am today is because the love I know God has for me. I can't remember the exact age that I came to trust Christ, but I know it was around the age of five or six. After that, Christ lit a fire in me. In fifth grade, I was diagnosed with scoliosis. This required me to wear a plastic back brace all through middle school. God taught me so much during this time. He taught me that no matter what happens to me or in this world around me, nothing will separate me from His love and protection. He's the only place that I will find true strength and happiness. I spent my entire life never knowing God. I never grew up in church. I was never taught the Bible. <laughs> Within the last year, my middle son, Luke, who was five at the time, had come to me telling me things that he had been told or seen through dreams by a man named Jesus. These are things in my life that had happened before I had ever had my children. As the months went on, my son would continue to tell me about his friend Jesus, who he kept dreaming about in heaven. And heaven is very beautiful, by the way, according to Luke. I truly believe that Jesus used my son as a way to make me see it, to believe it, so that I could come to know him and accept him into my life. I have never felt the kind of love I felt from the moment I knew Jesus had waited all these years for someone like me. When I came for the meeting before we got to the, when I heard that I have to give a testimony, I had a panic attack. That night, I went to sleep, but I woke up in a different place and I saw flashes of my life from the time I was a little girl, very painfully shy and very hurt. I woke up crying and all I can do is say that, thank you Lord Jesus, because I saw for the first time in my life, his right hand was stamped all over my life. 
through the pain and the hurt that I went through. I have eternal life because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I believe that Jesus is my life. No matter what people or friends, family would say, he is my life. Amen. I wonder what um, I wonder what Peter must have been thinking as he's going down that road from Joppa, heading up north to Caesarea. And he opens that door, and he sees Cornelius and all his family and friends. I have a sneaky suspicion that Peter, that Peter remembered the words of Jesus in John chapter four. Do you not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look onto the fields. They are white for harvest. And he walked into that room and he saw all those people, a field that was white to harvest. And folks, um, the fields are still white. We are doing this building bridge focus um, right at the same time as the study of the book of Acts because that, that converges with this I think the heart of God that says we have family members, we have coworkers, we have classmates. There are people everywhere in our, in our course of life. And like Peter, we just need to pray and be obedient, listen to the voice of the Lord, be bold, open our mouths, because we have something marvelous to share. There's a God in heaven who loved us so much he sent his son to pay for our sins, to die. And he rose again. And there's nothing we have to do to have the hope of eternal life but simply believe in Jesus and we are saved. Let's pray. Father, may you grant us the grace to be Peter-like, to be used of you, to build bridges, but then to cross those bridges, to open our mouths and share the wonderful, wonderful good news that we have a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you, Father. I pray, Father, that even this week we might be used of you in some way, in some form or fashion. For your glory, I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.